afternoon. I'm Alex Mosed. You're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle and struggle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. And so first topic for today is about um, continuing the theme of platform hacks, right? How can you solve this chicken and egg problem? And so there's an article that came out uh, a week ago or so about basically all these repackaging centers. So um, if if there are, say, larger retailers or manufacturers that want to put their products onto Amazon, what, what there are are these kind of intermediary locations where packages will come in, say, a retailer's box. They now go into this, uh, you know, kind of assortment facility, and now they go into an Amazon back box. The packaging is stripped, put into Amazon packaging, and then it goes out through an Amazon fulfillment center. And now Amazon's doing this at crazy scale. This article talks about a whole cottage industry of small businesses and, and other businesses that are trying to jump into this game uh, to solve for the scenario where I'm the marketplace, I get third-party inventory that I'm selling to my customers. I want the customer to experience one common uh, unified brand experience. And now you need these repackaging centers, basically. Um, so I, I guess it talks about Target doing this and you know all these kinds of things. So there's a lot of companies doing this, not just Amazon. Um, one of which is a company called Zorro. Uh, and Zorro is essentially a separate business unit owned and run by Granger. Granger is the leading industrial supply MRO distributor in what you call B2B distribution. Zorro on their on on Granger's last earnings call, um, the DG, the CEO of Granger, started to talk about. Uh, what Zorro is doing to expand its product catalog to, you know, try to embrace more marketplace type dynamics. The number that they said is they want to have, they want to add 10 million SKUs. That's uh, stock keeping units. They want to add 10 million products to the product catalog. And the majority of those coming from third party sellers. Um, and they want to do that over the period of a three to five year period of time. If you remember, we were just reviewing Walmart's quarterly earnings uh, I don't know, a week or two ago. And Doug, the CEO of Walmart, was saying that they've added 10 million SKUs in nine months, 9.5 million of which came from third-party sellers. Only half a million of those came from Walmart's internal buying units, you know, buying inventory, putting it on balance sheet and reselling uh, and he it. He was saying, too, that he thought that was slow and that the, a big priority for them in the months ahead is to actually speed that up. And that they needed to grow that assortment in order to continue to scale yep. successfully. Now, now I've got a little clip here from the uh, Granger quarterly earning call, which I'm going to pull up. Thank you. Our next question is coming from Michael McGinn from Wells Fargo. Your line is now live. Thanks a lot for the time. Um, if I could switch gears to more of a long-term fundamental question regarding the endless assortment um, model. Endless assortment is what they refer to the Zorro business. It's kind of this endless aisle, right? It, it's a marketplace model. That's that e-commerce marketplace. That's, that's what, that's what this analyst is referring to. There was a distinct concerted effort, uh, red box versus what shows up in a blue box. I'm just wondering long-term, what kind of thresholds are you putting 
on the third-party market to maintain branding? Are they going to get national account freight pricing? How does that feed into your supplier rebate discussions longer term? If you could just answer those quick questions, it'd be great. So, you know, our, we will have, as we build out the, the endless assortment, we will have partners that provide distinct oral branding, um, whether or not it's an asking box or a label is, is um, probably up for discussion at this point still. But the idea is we will make sure we retain the Zora branding. Um, Zora will have more ownership for its own um, its own state. Uh, it will still leverage freight contracts that we have at Granger. Uh, it will leverage some, some things at Granger, but in general it will be more independent. The value proposition will be independent and the business will be more independent. So you can hear there, right, that they are saying um, Granger's going to have its own, you know, its own uh, uh, Granger Zorro packaging for the products that they have in their own inventory. And then now they want to keep the experience the same blue box, red box. You kind of heard that a little bit. That's exactly this this article we were just talking about. Amazon has these kind of reassortment, repackaging facilities to change the boxing, keep the branding the same. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let's take a look at Zorro.com. The key thing, the key litmus test to look at on these sites to kind of see is it how open is the marketplace? But you want to see, you want to see a button that says, sell your stuff on our website. Usually that button is at the bottom. Um, I don't see it here. Uh, or, you know, it could be at the top, like, Come sell, because because that because it's a two sided marketplace. I need the buyers and I need the sellers. So you'd think, well, I should I should probably be advertising the seller side of my ecosystem. Uh, also on the buyer side, sometimes you could have prosumers. You don't see any buttons, um, and so the my assumption is that. This is a some a concept we've spoken about many, 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 many times before on the show, which is the idea of complementary marketplaces. These are saying, hey, let's go do partnerships. You heard them talk about partners. And so when you have these more curated type of marketplaces, like Target is doing this, right? You're saying, I'm not going to open up my the core of my product catalog to third-party sellers. I'm going to try and go sell complementary stuff that some of my customers might want in addition to the stuff they're already coming to me to buy. But I'm not going to disrupt or invite essentially competition in on the core stuff I'm selling. Why, why do you use words like disruption or competition? Because these are linear businesses. Target is a linear business. Uh, Zorro is a linear business. Granger is a linear business. B2B distributors are linear businesses, which means they are resellers. They buy product and then they do some stockholding. They split it up into different, you know, they do uh, fulfillment and logistics. They might do some value added services and then they sell it to someone else. But that all that inventory is on their balance sheet. And so um, the marketplace model is saying, I have a bunch of internal buyers. The same stuff the internal buyers are buying and then reselling, and they need to make a margin for my business to be profitable. I'm now going to let other third-party sellers be able to undercut my internal buyers. And the reason why I don't think Zorro is going to be comfortable to invite in that, essentially, the prospect of being undercut by other third-party sellers 
is because on this quarterly call, they spoke about, they being the executive team, um, they spoke about how uh, Zorro is profitable. They said Zorro is profitable and it's only going to become more profitable in Q1. The moment you start to set expectations with public shareholders about a P&L, we saw this with GE, you can say goodbye to massive business model innovation. It's not going to happen. When GE Digital started to make uh, have a, a P&L, make commitments that were being rolled up into the earnings of the business and presented to shareholders and analysts are judging the performance of the business based on those projections, that means you can't make these big drastic decisions that bring a lot of uncertainty with it, right? Um, are we going to have a lot of inventory just sitting on our balance sheet because now we were just undercut by all these third-party suppliers who are probably are a lot of our competition in our core business. It's a very big step to take. Here's why it's absolutely necessary is because you need a lot of demand. And so these, these complementary marketplace partnership type of models, you don't see enough throughput to get the suppliers to play your game. And as a result of that, you see the targets of the world kind of do these big partnerships um, with other large retailers. Um, and that was this, this article that we were talking about here with Amazon, where Target is doing this. Um, it's a top-down approach. Yes. Basically. Not bottom-up. Explain not, that. What does that mean? Top-down, what you see a lot of these curated marketplaces do is, let's go do a handful of partnerships with big companies that's how we get a few initial SKUs, but that never scales. We saw Walmart tried this with the Walmart Marketplace. They launched that in 2009. What they called Walmart Marketplace was Walmart and about three partners. And it never really scaled with that approach because it was too hard to sign up and become a seller. Uh, what Target is doing is even more constrained than that. And there's a lot of these businesses that will basically do this. For, oh, we'll get a few partners that will extend our assortment, but you're never going to get enough SKUs and enough breadth of your product catalog in there mm -hmm. and price competition to be able to compete with a true marketplace business. You miss the value by going this bottom uh, top-down approach, bottom-up, how marketplaces build is, let's go out and get this fragmented supply. Let's start with the smaller and the mid-sized sellers that would actually jump at the opportunity to get these new customers mm -hmm. and bring them in and let them compete with each other. And that's how we deliver the most value to the customer. I think mm -hmm. the challenge with these complementary marketplaces, they're basically solving a problem for the business, not for mm -hmm. the customer. The problem for the business is, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could sell more stuff to more people that we don't have ourselves? Mm -hmm. But you're not actually focusing on what is the value proposition for the customer and how am I going to deliver the most value to the customer, which is where marketplaces Most win. value to the customer and basically the most demand, right? If I have a bunch of customers going to my website right. and they want to buy a certain type of product, in this case, industrial supplies, and then you want to sell them complementary products, that's only going to apply to a small sliver of the customers, right? It right? doesn't really move the needle in a major way. And so you might get some like top line throughput. You might be able to get 10 million SKUs over three to five years, which is not fast enough. Yep. But you're also not getting the economics if you make these large partnerships. Right. You need to go bottom up, as you were saying. Build supply, bottom up. That's where it's the hardest way to do it. You cut your teeth bottom up. Now you have leverage over the large retailers uh, or large suppliers, and they have to take your economic model, yep. which is which they're not going to take right. if, if you go to them first. If you're doing this top-down model, you're making very little money on those third-party sales compared to this bottom-up approach where you set the standard terms, you know, what that take rate is, what you charge for various services. 
you build a thriving network around that with these smaller and mid-sized sellers. And then the big guys have to come play on your turf because that's where the demand is. And if yep. they want to go to customers. It's, it's just, it, it's a prioritization, right? It's like, um, it's like if it's like, uh, well, what was the handy competitor? Um, that home went joy. home joy. Yep. It's like home joy saying, you know, we're going to go to Europe and we're going to expand to Europe. Um, <laughs> when they've raised, I don't know, 30 or $50 million. And it's just, you're not ready to do it. You, what you got to do is prove the business model out in the core before you then expand into new adjacent territories. And so for Homejoy that's going to Europe, for, um, for uh, Azoro or a Target, that's complementary marketplaces, right? Prove it out in the core. Now, okay, you say, all right, Alex, well, that's easy. How do I just prove that out in my core and disrupt my whole business? Now, this is, this is why I don't think Ranger's trying to do this because they have this other site called Gamut. And Gamut, this is the current Gamut website. Basically, Gamut is gone. And on, <laughs> on this earnings call, they spoke about DG and, and the CEO and the team there spoke about how Gamut has, the learnings from Gamut have been rolled into Granger.com e-commerce experience. The beautiful thing about Gamut was that it's separate from the core business, just like how we've talked about Walmart Marketplace was way too close to Walmart.com or Walmart's right. core and, and business. Amazon Supply, the predecessor to Amazon Business Today, was actually a separate website initially. Yep. Uh, that eventually got folded and then became Amazon Business. Yes, became Amazon Business. and But the key thing was that they were able to embrace this idea of opening up the core part of the business to third parties. Right. And that's not, and that is something that would have been perfect to do on Gamut. 100%. To, to oh, hey, you know what? Gamut's a small property. It's a very kind of niche part of, uh, you know, customer audience that's coming to Gamut. How could I experiment with opening up MRO products to third-party sellers so on Gamut? Gamut is what I would call basically like a UX experiment. And, oh, and can we improve the, some of the technology? The search. And the, and the search. It had nothing to do with changing the business catalog, model right. to fit online shopping in a way that actually makes sense. It was, it was, from my point of view, kind of an incremental innovation. Not yes. really trying new stuff. But this would have been the place to me oh, yeah. to experiment where the, where the brand impact, the sales impact, no investors knew what Gamut was doing. It wasn't doing anything that material, but you could really experiment here and then try to bring those learnings, say, into a Zorro or maybe eventually into a Granger.com. But you try to open it up here and you see what works and what doesn't. You start bottom up here and there's less downside, essentially. Um, so anyway... Pretty sure none of that happened, and um, that's why I'm I'm just extremely skeptical uh, about. Even if now the good news is that Granger is talking about marketplace stuff. Now, challenge is how do you execute? And we've seen Walmart talk about marketplace stuff for ten years now, actually longer. Walmart Marketplace launching in two thousand nine, and guess what? They mess up the execution. Then they went to go buy Jet for three billion dollars. Right. And they're getting the execution right today, but they're having to make a lot of investments and play a lot of catch up. The Granger folks are talking about Marketplace finally. This is actually new. They weren't yep. talking about Marketplace and opening things up. They, they had been basically openly denying Marketplace for the yes. last couple of years. So now they're talking about Marketplace, but they're not embracing it as in depth or aggressively as they should to say, how do we open up the core first? 
And then think about large partnerships, adjacent markets, second, right? Because right? that stuff is, to me, it's more of a distraction. You got to start with the hard stuff first, prove it there, and then figure out how to expand. So um, that's our Granger deep dive. Um, we have a question here. So in the, in the old, from Mike, in the old model, you just find the, cut, the consumer and sell them. Uh, it seems like a modern version of chicken and egg problem. How do you get the first buyers and suppliers on board when nobody is using your platform? Okay, um, good question. So one of, the, one of the great ways that we've seen this, especially for the traditional incumbents to solve this problem, a big advantage they have is they have supply initially. Um, they can bring hundreds of thousands of SKUs to the table. Right. Uh, and seed the marketplace. They, they, can, go, be, they can be the backstop. Basically. They can be the backstop. We would call that as acting as a producer for, for one of the strategies to overcome the chicken and egg problem. What we spoke about last episode was what Jet.com did, where they were actually just literally posting fake inventory. This was our fake it till you make it platform hack story. So Jet.com was literally posting fake inventory, buying it off Amazon, I think maybe some of this they were doing the repackaging like we were talking about, but this industry wasn't really around in 2015 um, when Jet.com was really trying to scale aggressively. They were bought in 2016. So I think a lot of them were just like literally Jet.com customers were getting packages in Amazon boxes, but the customers were still getting the package. Jet.com was booking a sale and they were able to start getting that demand uh, engine going and then eventually start trying to get third-party sellers more more directly uh, integrated, intertwined with Jet. Um, but yeah, it's a very difficult challenge. You got, you got to try and imitate supply, either bring your own supply, being a linear seller, or imitate supply and fake it till you make it in some other way uh, until you get there. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. Okay, we're on, the, we're on the topic of marketplaces. Another question we had is, why would Nike buy StockX uh, and not create their own marketplace. This was a, a, a video we were talking about about a couple of weeks ago. Or um, before Thanksgiving. Yeah, our prediction yep. that Nike is going to go buy StockX or one of the other sneaker marketplaces. But I feel like StockX is probably the best one for them to buy. I think at this point with Nike's scale, with it, it the market's too mature. Right. You already have now um, at least three unicorn uh platform you know marketplace businesses goat yep exactly um it it, nike does obviously have a lot of ammunition and i mean it's the biggest sneaker manufacturer in the world so they obviously do have a lot of advantages i would just say in the grand scheme of things you're going to get to market faster it's going to be much less risky and basically it's just a you're it is more expensive for them to do it, but it's going to give them a like a higher likelihood of winning. And I think the trade-off there is absolutely worth it, yep. um, given what's at stake for Nike. But if you rewind the clock like three years ago, two years ago, maybe even, um, then I would say, yeah, Nike should just try to go build their own uh, sneaker marketplace and, and they could win realistically. Right. It's, a, it's a timing and competition issue. There's too much competition out there that is too... Too far along, and then it becomes a liquidity issue for Nike. Yeah, I'm Nike, but how am I going to get all these third-party sellers and third-party supply mm-hmm. to join? It's going to be very tough for them to do that when you have three existing dominant sneaker marketplaces out there that are already very strong. Yep. Okay, so um, I was on Maria Bartiromo's show on Wednesday morning, 
6.20 in the morning. Uh, that was an early one for me. So, um, and we, we, what we were talking about was Larry Page, Sergey Brin, two co-founders of Google stepping down. Uh, so here's a, here's, here's a little snippet on that. I mean, look at that stock chart. Uh, it, it has had quite a run, Alex. So do you agree with, with what you're hearing from Ivan? Would you also want to buy the stock on this news and that Sundar Pichai is going to be the CEO of, of Alphabet as well as uh, Google? Sure, I would buy the stock, but that's mostly because of what Larry and Sergey have done to set up Sundar and Alphabet for the next three to five years. I think, you know, the question is what happens beyond those things, right? What Google is teed up to do in automotive with Waymo and these new businesses that are on the horizon, they're very well positioned over the next few years. And these aren't small businesses. Waymo is not a small business, as, as the other guest was just mentioning. And so, Sundar should be able to help integrate these new up-and-coming businesses that might be small by Google's standards, but are still pretty large and have a lot of momentum. I think the, what is the next Waymo? What are the next now early stage uh, ventures or acquisitions that Alphabet needs to take? And how well can Sundar really plot that course, uh, provide enough autonomy and separation from Google's core operating businesses to let these new bets thrive, and will he be able to drive those new uh, initiatives while also managing the existing business? If you draw a comparison to Tim Cook, on the other hand, although uh, Apple and Microsoft are probably neck and neck for two of the largest tech, uh, tech market cap companies currently, what Tim has done or not, not done when plotting out the next bounce of the ball for Apple I would be much more skeptical looking at Apple's long-term horizons versus, say, Microsoft with Satya, who also stepped into the shoes of a management-led CEO, where Satya has really brought Azure and these completely new businesses right into the foray for Microsoft, and that really has led to them being one of the biggest companies in the world, versus Apple and the level of innovation and kind of new business models that they're putting together, uh, for me personally, has been underwhelming. Oh. Some people didn't like that comment. Which CEO is 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 setting up their tech monopoly uh, to dominate over the long term? This is a five plus year outlook between Tim, between Tim and Satya, CEO of Apple versus CEO of Microsoft. And then you could also do it, a, you know, a three way between those two guys and then throw uh, Sundar in there. You know, I'd honestly put my money five plus years on Satya because he's the one who has really shown me that he is able to really bring new, completely new or, or relatively very new platform businesses into right. the foray, put those in a position of dominance. I don't know what Tim is doing five plus years out. And I open for a new device. We can, we can call that the menage platform uh, poll right there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. They got out of cars. I mean, when you look really long term, Tim was the COO of Apple, and he's done a great job of incrementally improving Apple's right, stuff. Core business, but there's no next new business. It, the, the stuff they're doing in services, so stuff like Apple Music, uh, Apple TV Apple Plus, TV Plus isn't gonna move the needle, and no. it's not gonna bring them the kind of profit they're used to from no. the phone business. Five plus years out, what happens when the iPhone is, is really like kind of losing steam and there's right. Some a other new form kind of new factor device, or a new but... interaction model? What's that gonna be?
There's, um, there's no guarantee that Apple's as dominant in whatever comes next as they are in smartphones. Yeah. I mean, it's just like how Microsoft, why, you know, why Microsoft missed mobile when they were there. Right. And they should have gotten it. Right. If you rewind to 2005, 2006, everyone was concerned, oh, Microsoft's going to dominate mobile phones. No one can compete with them. Uh, we're going to be stuck with Microsoft as the huge monopoly forever. And mon- yeah. Microsoft's still very successful today but as a very different company from what it was in 2005. And they missed mobile phones. Bill Gates said, Bill Gates, has, has said yeah. it. And I think probably, um, uh, what's that, you know, what's our boy's name? LA Clippers owner. Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer probably also echoed that. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I would say probably my ranking, it would be Satya one, Sundar two, just because it's unknown. He's, you know, he's new. He's coming to the bat. Coming to the plate right now, right. he has. Fortunately, though, he has things like Waymo and Android Automotive that are going to be absolute slam dunks. And he has stuff coming up like Google Health and Verily and these other things that have uh, some good early. Traction. They've gotten them off the ground. Yeah. They're still kind of raw. How well can he nurture those things? I think. I think some analysts value the Waymo business and all that at a hundred billion dollars today. So that one's kind of hard to mess up at this point, right? It's it's already. <laughs> going and it's already crushing it's already got gm and i think honda and maybe volvo agreeing to put android automotive into the vehicles which is so crazy to me um but anyway that's pretty much a lock you just got to get out of the way um the other things yeah the google health which is what the next next topic we're going to get to Be interesting how he can navigate that but hey balls in his court right it's his to lose how well can he shepherd that i think he is going to need more help to just run the day-to-day of google um, while he needs to now help nurture the alphabet part of the business, which is really what Larry and Sergey had been focused on and really, in my opinion, had done a great job. When you compare this, though, to Zuckerberg, who I'd say has also done a really great job in terms of, you know, either doing organic platform business creation like or, or M&A, yep. Messenger and M&A, Instagram and a bunch of things, WhatsApp. right? WhatsApp. And, and you're going up to buy, let's say, a unicorn. And I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's let's say Google and Facebook are trying to buy that business and you get to sit down with Zuckerberg and Zuckerberg's like, this is the future of our company. I need you. Let's go do this. Or you have Sundar, a management CEO, and you're the founder. I feel like you're going to you're going to be more. It's a very emotional decision. I think. You, you're going to use Zuckerberg going into that. If it is between the two of them in this hypothetical scenario, Zuckerberg absolutely has an advantage of plucking that company up, maybe at a slightly uh, d- much of a discount just because of that founder energy. And it's hard to match that yeah. um, when you're ed- especially trying to do M&A and bring on other kind of, you know, platform businesses that that could be the next Instagram or the next Android um, so this is definitely a loss. I don't think Google is screwed over the next few years. I think they're going to be just fine, but really long-term, um, that's where I think this will come into play. So last topic, Google caught a lot of flack for this Ascension health news where they had millions of medical records. Some, someone broke the news. And then as a result, Google came out with more information about what they're doing with, um, electric health records or EHR, EMR data is, is, is the acronym. So we're going to dig into that in a second. Google's doing a number of things in this area. Um, Verily 
is a separate entity from Google right. um, that is their kind of like life sciences um, moonshot business. They have this thing called Project Baseline, um, which we've spoken about on the show, which is now partnered up with a handful of some of the biggest pharma companies in the world, trying to um, change how the clinical, um, you know, clinical kind of therapeutic evaluation process is is done, right? So basically what you would call is the clinical trial where you now are um, getting real patients to test out your drug and you have half the people take basically uh, the real drug and then half people take um, a fake version of it. They think they don't know if they're taking it or not. And then you compare these two groups and you try and see, do I see a difference between the group that actually took the drug versus the group that took the placebo, I think, right? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Um, and hopefully the former does better than the latter. Otherwise, it's not a good uh, clinical. It's not getting past the clinical trial. Anyway, so they're doing stuff in that arena. They're doing stuff with drug discovery, which is the process of researching new therapeutics. So that's, that's even a level higher in the uh, therapeutic, which is just a fancy word for drug. Um, in the therapeutic creation process, drug discovery is, hey, how do I figure out what drugs to research and then to create and kind of trial out in a lab? And then the next step is, okay, now let me put this actually in, in tests, clinical trials, try and get the FDA to approve it. And then there's the distribution of that drug and all these things. Google Health is a completely other division. Google Health is within Alphabet. Google Health is run by this guy, David Feinberg. Um, who used to run a massive healthcare system called Geisinger. Now he's at Google. This fellow is who we're going to watch talk about what Google Health is doing. I'm going to skip around a little bit, and you're going to get the idea of what the thing does pretty easily. Today, healthcare data is siloed, and innovation to improve the clinical experience is hard. The tools for frontline clinicians are clerical and suboptimal for decision-making. We need modern tools that are a joy to use. Doctors and nurses spend half their day in the electronic health record, and they often have to log into multiple systems with multiple usernames and multiple passwords, rather than seeing all the information in a single place. That's it. That's what they're doing. It's just the operating system for doctors and, and physicians and practitioners. So look, they can give you a little demo. Look, you got this nice little dashboard, all the different medical records, all in one place. You can click into a bunch of stuff. It's like a fancy Google search, but for doctors and nurses and, and practitioners, right? And, you, and boom, it's got all the AI from Google. They're making it much more organized. The Epic and Cerner's we've talked about are completely miserable companies that give you horrible experiences. Um, so it's smart. It's an intelligent, I'm calling this an operating system for doctors. Now you'd say to yourself, well, where's the platform dynamic in all this? And that's a great question. Um, Platform dynamic is going to be to open up this data to other third-party companies uh, that can run their own analytics on your medical record and provide insights down to the doctor. Um, there's so much information in here. Google's AI is very good, but it's not going to solve for every scenario. It's not going to catch every little you know, disease state or all these kinds of things. So how can you now let the power of the technology, healthcare technology industry, and all the healthcare tech startups 
get access to data. That's been the huge blocker in the industry is no one can get access to the data. So Google was under fire and millions of these health records from Ascension, which is a large healthcare provider. And Google said, we, we did nothing wrong. You know, it's all uh, compliance and all these things. And um, okay, here's the secret. Google's not the only one doing this, folks. Okay, there are plenty of other large companies in the healthcare industry, other, other tech monopolies, other pharma companies. They're doing the same thing. They're doing deals with healthcare providers to get access to health record information and to try to create intelligence, to try to, try to create value um, for the physician, for the practitioners. Uh, and all these kinds of things. Now, the network effect is coming from APIs and third-party developers that can create software uh, for the end user. The end user, in this case, being the physician. Um, and then if you look at, you know, Google just bought Fitbit and um, Apple, what they're doing with the consumer. Then what you can also do now, if you're Google and you're trying to differentiate yourself, um, now you can bring that consumer user-generated data, tie that into this operating system, and that is, so, you know, that's a lot of what I hear from the industry, from the healthcare tech industry, is just the health record alone doesn't really give me, it doesn't really get me over the hump for everything that I'd want to be able to learn or, or analyze, right? The, the health record data is, you know, it's a mixed bag of value. But when you can start pairing together different sources of data, so the health record, um, certain, you know, lab diagnostic tests, your, your say, your genetic information, um, your user-generated Fitbit information. You start tying these things together. That's the holy grail. Now and you start to open that up. together and helping identify patterns and useful insights from that. I think the other complaint doctors have is, sure, my patient brought me their Fitbit, but I don't know how to make sense of all this data. So you, you need those third-party developers and the platform provider to bring insights and bring value out of that data from tying it together. It's not just an aggregation. I think they're, they're kind of calling this like Google search for doctors. I'm calling this Android for doctors. This to me is more where Google search is a content platform connecting you to other websites with content. This to me is a development platform that is giving you value. You know, it has killer apps just like Android does, right? The killer apps for this are these dashboards, these key analytics and views and, and key points of AI right. that they can deliver to the doctor. And that gives you that stickiness, that key overall dashboard and some, some, some key kind of things that you can dive into. The app store then are all the hundreds of thousands of different permutations or very specific use cases that Google's never going to be able to build all that stuff. And they shouldn't build all that stuff, but they're helping to bring the data together, clean the data, provide key insights to the doctor to get the doctor using this. Um, and now, and then the next step is how do you open this up? And oh boy, I can already hear all the critics. And you wanna know who the critics are? The critics are the incumbents, okay? You wanna know who is saying, oh, this is so horrible that Google is doing this? It's the incumbents. I guarantee that behind all of these nonprofits that are saying this is so horrible and Google's so horrible for doing this, is absolutely the, um, the the EHR software companies like the Epics and the Cerners, right, which own like ninety percent of the market and have basically Epic made and Cerner fifty six, but yes, a majority of the market. They've made it suck for all of their users, right? And 
pharma companies. It's the incumbents. It's the incumbents that are absolutely behind the majority of the outcry here. Um, net, net, this is a good thing that Google is doing. This industry has needed to be disrupted for a long, long, long time. And um, finally, I think it's coming and it's going to be good. So uh, I have faith in David and the team. Uh, Apple, I'll give Apple credit. I think Apple's doing a lot of very interesting things in this space as well. So um, power to them and, and keep it going and we will continue to cover it. Thanks for joining us today on Winner Take All. We'll talk to you next week.